Hi, I am Chris Kevorkian. I am a thanatologist. I am one of a handful of people in the United States with a doctoral degree in thanatology, which is the study or science of death, dying, and bereavement. Something a little different. Because I'm in death, I think, um, you know, we talk about laughter a lot and how laughter is the best medicine and everything. And I think that I would really love to be a comedian and just lighten up the world because there's so much stuff happening. And what's so fascinating at the end of life is when people really begin to see what's important and what isn't. And I think we focus so much on what really isn't important. And this pandemic is teaching us a lot of that right now. Not the easiest lesson by any means, but it's really teaching us to, to value what's important, like loved ones and having food and these types of things. But I just think laughter is the best medicine and I, I think we need so much more of it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Mark Laird Young, author of Orcas Everywhere, and welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. To start off this special Earth Day episode where we're talking with Chris Kevorkian, an expert on coping with grief and change, I just wanted to ask you, how are you doing? No, I can't hear you, so don't shut out your podcasting app. But I can read your emails, your tweets, your Facebook messages. And one thing I've been trying to do since going into lockdown is reach out to more people more often. So reaching out to you right now, how are you coping with Corona World? Contact us and let us know. And if there's someone you'd really like us to talk to on Scanna while we're living in this crazy time, please tell us and we'll try and track them down. When people ask me how I'm doing right now, I keep thinking the only honest answer is the one American soldiers came up with in World War II. SNAFU, which stands for Situation Normal, All Effed Up. Now, I'm not saying what the F stands for because you may be listening to this with your kids because, hey, we're all locked down. But in our world, Rain's immunocompromised, and I've had pneumonia a couple times. So we're pretty much in lockdown with our cats. Our cats, however, best time ever. And before the world shut down, I was about to launch two new kids' books about orcas and celebrate the opening of an orca exhibit at the Royal BC Museum where I got to work as the guest curator and write the cool panels on the wall. But hey, we get to do this. And my kids' books, Orcas of the Sailor Sea and Big Whale Small World, are being launched May 1st at noon PST on Facebook Live thanks to a special initiative by Canada's National Theatre called Canada Performs. There's a hashtag in front of that if you want to look it up. You can find out more in our show notes and on all our social media links. And hey, Rain and I are in lockdown together, and my friends and relatives who contracted COVID, they all seem to be recovering. And we have food and toilet paper! Seriously, if someone told me a month ago that having food and toilet paper would make me feel like a jillionaire? Yeah, welcome to the brave new world. And suddenly our Patreon patrons 
really are the only reason we can keep doing these interviews because we can't pay our online host sites, Wi-Fi providers, and interns with toilet paper squares. At least not yet. So thanks, as always, to our pod who sponsor us through Patreon.com, including Simon McNair, Susie Venuta, Robert Anderson, Chantel Shawnee-Surrett, Darren Lern-Young, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Eagle Wing, Orca Publishing, and Yosef Lask. If you want to find us and join our pod and help us share more stories like this more often, please Google, Scanna, and Patreon. If Patreon isn't your thing, we're also set up on Giving Tuesday. And there's even a PayPal tip jar on our Scanna site. You can also help us out by subscribing, downloading, hitting us with some five-star ratings to help us attract more listeners, more patrons, and more sponsors. Thanks. So, as I record this, I realize all of us are grieving for normal. Whatever we were excited about that was supposed to be coming next. And some of us are grieving for friends and loved ones we've lost in this pandemic. And that's why I was so excited to be able to interview Chris Kervorkian. Chris and I met virtually a few years ago when I became interested in her work fighting to win legal rights for the Sailor Sea and the Southern Resident Orcas. Then I discovered Chris Kevorkian is the person who came up with the term environmental grief and the term ecological grief. And she developed these concepts by working with people working for the Southern Resident Orcas. I've wanted to have her on our podcast for years. I am so glad we waited till now because I can't think of a better person to talk to about what we're all going through. To talk to her about work and why we need to keep fighting the good fight for this planet and ways we can try to cope with what we're all going through right now. And now, let's talk grief and laughter with thanatologist Chris Kevorkian. Hi, Chris. How are you? Where are you? <laughs> Hi, Mark. I am doing great. I am in Gig Harbor, Washington, and I love it here because there's wildlife all around me. And today I was just adding some more bird seed to my bird feeders and just appreciate seeing all my wild cousins and brother and sister trees that are around me and just love it. And well, I'm doing quite well. I'm very concerned about people who have lost their jobs and people who are stuck inside who don't want to be, um, but hopefully they're finding their way through this, this chaos. Now, you are a thanatologist, which is one of the best words I've ever heard. <laughs> Can you please explain what a thanatologist is? Because I've been yeah. looking to have you on the show for like, two years, ever since I've added about what you do. And I'm not sure, sadly, this feels like the wrong word, but sadly and appropriately, this feels like the perfect time for us to be having a conversation. So yeah. can you explain what a thanatologist is? Yeah, and so thanatology is the study or science of death, dying, and bereavement. And basically, there's so many different realms of thanatology because it's sort of an umbrella for a lot of different issues. Uh, trauma could fall underneath it, um, just grief counseling and so on and so forth. And ideally, years ago, when I actually 
um, learned about the degree or, or the subject of it, I had met a woman who was a thanatologist in a hospital. And unfortunately, we don't see many quote unquote thanatologists now in hospitals. You'll have either a nurse or social workers who's helping doing some grief work or something, but it's not necessarily the focus. And I wish they'd hire thanatologists. I had some trouble. I had originally wanted to teach in medical schools once I got my doctoral degree, but because my last name's Kevorkian at the time, um, I was in school, Dr. Jack Kevorkian was a physician assisted suicide doctor and, and people thought we were related. So I kind of got pushed out a little bit because a lot of the people in the medical community didn't like him. So it's it's been quite a challenge, but Thanatology is fabulous, and I love the fact that the Avengers actually had Thanos as a character, because then people kind of understood, oh my god, now I know Thanos' is death. It's like, yes, now you get it. That's what I do. But not, you know, to that extreme that I help people who are in the dying process and the grieving process. Wow. Now, when we first started talking way back, we, I was looking back at some of our old emails and you were talking about both ecological grief and environmental grief. Can you explain what each of those are and how they differ? Because I didn't yeah. realize there was a difference and I think that's fascinating. Well, so I came up with environmental grief years ago when I was actually, when I started my doctoral program because I was doing hospice work and got a little bit frustrated with quite a few of the doctors who weren't communicating well with our terminally ill patients. And so typically on hospice, we would get a referral from a doctor to go to see a patient and their family and sign them up for services, admit them to services. And there were probably about a handful of times where I would go out with the nurse and introduce ourselves, introduce the services and so forth. And the patients would wonder, why is hospice here? What are, you, what are you doing here? And we'd say, your doctor has told us that you're terminally ill. And the patients didn't know. And so I thought oh, wow. they'd be sobbing, going, wait, we didn't know this. And I'd start sobbing because it's just like, I did not want to be the one dropping this bomb on you. And it was horrifying for everybody. And so I thought, okay, that's it. I'm gonna get a doctoral degree. I'm gonna teach in medical schools how doctors can communicate to patients and so forth. And so I got into my doctoral program and uh, had contacted some medical programs and just, again, the last name was just like, no, no, we don't want you. And so I thought, well, fine. I already was in the doctoral program I had started and I just kept having this ka moment thinking, oh my God, I'm paying for this doctoral program and I'm not sure what I'm doing. So I went to my default, which has been Wales because I studied Wales most of my life and then got into social work and end of life care kind of by a fluke. And so, oh, no pun intended. <laughs> so um, I decided I looked at all the organizations I had been a part of before getting into social work and, and death and dying. And I just started realizing, I, I sensed, had this overwhelming sense of grief as I was reading about the destruction of the environment, more whale species just beaching themselves and so on. And, and as I was reading all of this, I just, this grief just kept coming up. And I'm like, God, I have environmental grief. 
And so immediately I looked it up and I couldn't find it anywhere. And I told my doctoral committee and then I had to switch my committee around because I wanted people who were more science-based than, you know, psychology or, or something. And, and they kept thinking, well, you know, maybe you've come up with this. I'm just like, no, I'm not that type of person really. And I mean, I'm a high school dropout. How can I come up with anything? And so I looked, I went to UCLA. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I went to UCLA libraries and USC and God bless the librarians because they were helping me look this up everywhere we could and we couldn't find it anywhere. And I'm like, okay, so what is environmental grief? And the way that I defined it was that it's the grief reaction stemming from the environmental loss of ecosystems caused by natural or man-made events. And in order to look at that and explore it further, um, I came up to Washington to focus my research on the Southern resident orcas and their decline. And what was fascinating is that the scientists and people I interviewed kept saying, wow, you put a name to this vague feeling I'd had, but you know, in science people are taught to be, you know, to, to not get engaged with their subjects. You know, you just have to be really, it's, it's a subject and it's an it, it's not much more than that. Thankfully, Jane Goodall blew that out of the water, but uh, it's still kind of a challenge. So that's environmental grief. And that's more, more global, that's more, as I see it, forests and, and other things or like the southern resident orcas that are declining. Ecological grief is the grief reaction stemming from the disconnection and relational loss from our natural world. So an example of that, I've got two examples of that. One would be um, I had a, a baby, uh, just a, a baby deer that was born on right outside my office, my home office. And couldn't believe it because I am from the city and I was freaking out and watching this baby every single day, making sure she was safe and okay, and made the mistake of naming her Arabesque. And I fell in love with her. And I, you know, I don't engage, I don't feed, I, I don't touch, I do, don't do anything like that. I, they're my brothers and sisters, but I don't, I don't do that because I'm afraid they'll get used to people and people will do stupid things to them. So I kept an eye on Arabesque and one day she had an injured hip and was limping. And then uh, months later, I didn't see her anymore. And I was, I was quite devastated by that because I really, I have fallen in love with this deer. And while she's not a human loved one, she was, as I see all nature, a family member. And so it was quite devastating. Um, but I was also taught about ecological grief from uh, Remora <laughs> that I met years ago. I was swimming with, a wild, with wild dolphins in Bimini and there, <laughs> it was such an, I could, can't even explain how elated I was that there was a bottlenose dolphin about six feet away from me swimming and I was looking at it and I was snorkeling and I, just was screaming into the snorkel thinking, oh my God, there's a dolphin right here. And at any moment could have probably drowned because I just kept screaming just with sheer elation and bliss that I ignored the nurse shark and the remoras 
down on the bottom, just, you know, swimming on the, on the floor of the ocean. And as I was swimming back to the boat, I noticed something kind of pulling on my leg and it was a remora. <laughs> and I just like thought, okay, you need to get off. I'm not a shark. Please don't try to attach on my leg. And I, as I was actually getting into the boat, it was still on me. And people were panicking, thinking, oh my God. I'm like, okay, nobody hurt this. Just let it be. Let let this little boy or girl do its thing and, and hopefully she or he will come off and let's just be very gentle. But it was an interesting story. It felt like this remora was trying to remind me that while I may be totally excited being with this dolphin, that there's more to this natural world and, and the world that we were in and that I needed to pay more attention to everybody who was there. And that maybe she or he was having a little bit of grief not being acknowledged. So I found that really fascinating. And finally, we were able to, to remove him or her from my leg, but it was an interesting story. It was an interesting experience to have with that remora. Um, and I'm glad everybody was safe, but it was, um, it was interesting and fun. But hopefully that gives you some examples of the differences. So do you coin environmental grief? Yes, I actually coined both of them. And I, you know, it's so funny because my doctoral committee, when we were talking about environmental grief, they're just like, okay, Chris, this is great, but you know, you're the only one who feels this way and you're never going to make money. And, you know, you can write about it, but don't expect much. And I thought, okay, but there might be somebody else who feels this way. And if there is, then, you know, at least the two of us can commiserate together but I did have there was one professor who was in uh, the doctoral university that I went to who while she was getting her doctorate had come up with a mathematical formula and when she graduated the university kept that formula for themselves as though they had discovered it she wasn't allowed to attach her name to it and so she said you need to make sure to um, put these terms under intellectual property. And that was one reason, but the second reason that was important is because when I did come up with these terms, it was during uh, the time when George Bush, we call him the shrub here, Jr. was in office. Um, the concern that we had was that there was so much, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but, but there were a lot of people on the religious right who, we were concerned we're going to say we have environmental grief or ecological grief because we're not using the resources that God gave us, the environmental resources. And so I thought, okay, then I'm going to pay the mega bucks to protect the terms and hopefully won't have any problems. But sadly, with the internet, um, people have been using the work, um, using the terms not citing me at all and changing the definitions. And so that's been challenging. And then even some big people in the field have used it. And there's one person I had to actually send a cease and desist letter to. I normally don't because I want the work to get out and I want it to help people. And now it, 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 it's everywhere. It's, you know, they got climate grief, eco grief, eco anxiety, eco, I mean, all these different things. And it's just, it, it's good, but I don't, I don't want it to be medicalized 
I don't see grief as a disorder. I see it as a life issue. And so I wish people would stop trying to medicalize it or, or put it as some sort of mental illness because I don't see my environmental grief or ecological grief as a disorder. I see it as a proper reaction to what's happening on the planet um, and with species. It's funny, I think I first heard the term because I had a friend who had his climate awakening, however you want to put it. But I, I've, I've had a few friends who talked about having their moment when it hit them that our planet is not in good shape. And in one case, one of my friends was really shattered by it. And he saw either a psychiatrist or a psychologist in Vancouver who worked with him on, and he, he either used the term, I think he used the term environmental grief because he was grieving for the future. Mm -hmm. He was, and his life kind of fell apart in a lot of ways because his wife did not have the same anxieties and was like going, you know, put it aside, don't think about it. And he couldn't, it became his obsession. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, done all this work with environmentalists throughout my life. And I've run into this a few times. And even when you're talking about whales, I look at one particular prominent orca researcher we both know and go, as to my eye, this is somebody who's been grieving ever since the population dropped below about 80 for Southern residents. Mm -hmm. that, that this person's been a very different human being. Mm -hmm. And it sure looks to me like whether, whether you determine environmental grief or ecological grief or just flat out grief, grief yeah you know this person to me is going through the state going through the grieving process for the possible end of this species yeah yeah and what's interesting is when i when i started doing or i should research, say this culture so nobody yeah. calls me out on this the southern residents you know orcas will still be there but this culture as you know is absolutely unique so yeah. this culture is yeah. irreplaceable and when I came up, so I started my research in 2001. And when I was contacting ORCA researchers about it, um, a lot of people just push, put me off. It's just like, yeah, we don't, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so I was excited to, to meet with some people who actually did understand by the time my interview was over with them. And they're just like, oh my God, yeah, this makes sense. But yeah, it was funny because I even presented at two conferences at Oxford University in 2006. And I remember just standing up there and one conference was for people who are mostly in like conservation biology and wildlife and, and others. And they're just like, yeah, I get it. And I never thought about this until you brought it up. And then the other conference was for people in the soft science, sciences like anthropology, sociology, um, and psychology. And I, I got up there, I, I finished my presentation, and honest to God, Mark, they were like crickets. It was as if I, people literally just looked at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And why, wow. why, why, why would we grieve the environment? I don't understand what you're talking about. And so it's interesting to see now we've got the you know, Climate Psychology Alliance and all these different climate psychology associations. It's like, 
finally you're catching on, but please, again, don't make it a disorder. Can you start talking about the grieving that the world is going through, the grieving that we're all going through, looking at what we thought was our future disappearing before our eyes? Yeah. So I've seen friends go through this when they've had their climate reckoning is what I remember uh, Sapporah Berman calling it. Her moment of climate, I think it was climate reckoning where she, where it hit her, oh my God, we've only got this much time. Basically what Greta Thunberg has been talking about, yeah. this moment of mourning for the future. And suddenly I feel like everybody I know is mourning for their future. They're John Oliver did a wonderfully hilarious rant about his soccer team not, you know, being on the verge of winning this championship and ranting about that. And whether it's something like that or whether it's the job you always knew, the world you always knew, how can people cope with what they're going through now? What can people do? How do we grieve? How do we move on? Yeah. This is a huge, huge challenge because as everyone's saying, it's so unprecedented. But I look at it as, as the way we deal with people who are terminally ill. It's part of the anticipatory grief that people are seeing. It's like our roles are changing. Everything that we're seeing is changing. It's all different. What is our future going to be? How is it going to change? And so anticipatory grieving helps us kind of connect with all of that. But it goes back to when, when people ask me this, I always ask them first, how have you coped in the past with any sort of change, with, with loss? Are there changing schools when you go from high school into college, if you're able to do that, or you get a different job, or you move to a different area? How have you coped with that? And then let's build on that. Let's help empower you to, to be able to find the coping skills that work best for you. But given these unprecedented times, there's, it's just too overwhelming to even go there because it's not just the fact that we're in a pandemic, but we're seeing, at least in the United States, environmental protections being thrown out the window. Um, morality is gone. Everything seems to be gone. And so how do we even begin to navigate through that? And one of the things that I find personally for me is looking at mindfulness and being conscious of what I'm doing in every moment because I don't have control over what, I'm not I'm trying to be polite, what is happening in government in the United States in particular. I don't have control over that until I get to vote, which hopefully will still happen. Who knows if, who knows? No. But I have control over my situation over where I'm living, everything, and how I'm reacting to all of that. And so if I want to be screaming and angry, I'm going to allow that because I'm finding so many people are just saying, oh, look at the positives, look at the positives. And while that's great, and some of us are able to do that, there are people who have lost their jobs. They can't afford to buy groceries. All of these horrible things. Or I also think about people who have been in abusive situations who are now stuck with their abusers. It's not an easy time for anybody. But if you can find something with just within mindfulness, just within a moment that you can 
see any sort of hope, any glimmer of hope, then build on that and that will hopefully help you keep going. We talk about a lot in grief and death about the suffering and pain and sure there is, there's that, I mean, that's huge, but there are ways that we can navigate through that. And in grief, the lessons that I find from grief and from death are, like I said, appreciating what we have in the now. And for, thankfully for, for quite a few people, I, I know just in my immediate area, people are doing okay. Uh, I, because of my field, most of the people I know are retired because I work with older people for the most part. And so they're okay, but it's, it's my younger friends and, and others who are looking at, okay, so the old people are all right, but what about us young people who, what, what is the world gonna look like after this pandemic? And how do we want it to look? And that's where it's just focusing on what you can in the moment will help you take steps to, to how you want it to look. Well, I remember, learning about Maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah. <laughs> in, in psychology in high school. And I thought, I have so shifted from, I'm trying to self-actualize, you know, I've shifted from the start of this pandemic being shattered because of live performance. I was expect, I was planning to do like three days after the world shut down. I was doing a comedy concert opening for some friends, the Arrogant Worms. And it took me a while to get past that wasn't happening to today going, oh, this is so cool. I have enough stuff to make chili tomorrow, right? Like my, the priorities have totally shifted to me going through, if I combine those beans and that tomato can, I've got a really nice bowl of chili. And just values sort of shifting daily. I've got a friend who said like a day in COVID time is like a year, in, a year prior. Yeah. So many things shift. You wake up and you go, yeah, you know that thing we told you about the masks? We were wrong. Do the masks. You know how we told you to wash your groceries? Oh, sorry, that ruined your groceries and you're all going to get dysentery because you put soap on them. Right? And it's like every single day you wake up something. I've, my, part of my coping strategy is I can only look at news and social media once a day mm -hmm. because I can keep calm, live my own life, and I'm pretty good. And then I read about your president, and yes. suddenly my head explodes and all things feel futile. Okay, not my president, not my president. But okay, <laughs> but the, the president in the country that you're yes. in, you know, yes. we, we've got our own issues in Canada, yes, but you do, <laughs> but yours are like it actually feels more like you've got a Batman villain in the White House than a president. So I can't read about anything about that and then function. So I've got to go, okay, now's the moment I'm going to check Facebook, Twitter, read the news, find out what fresh hell we're in. And <laughs> just get, yeah, there will be no writing after this. There yeah. certainly will be no writing of comedy after this or, or happy things. But are there any other coping mechanisms like that? How do you tell people to cope? Because you're dealing with palliative people all the time. How do you tell people to cope? Like both the people who are dying, but also their friends and family? Well, you know, I just, I really do ask them. I want to build on their own coping skills. So it's very unique to each person. But I do encourage people to 
limit their amount of news because I think that's a huge struggle. And again, to me, it's really, it's learning to value or learning what to value most. And this is really challenging people. And it reminds me of, I, I, honestly, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but it just reminds me of hospice patients I had who would tell me that they got into that um, taking time to smell the roses kind of saying of people who were working all the time and loved their jobs, but they were just working so much that they never spent time actually seeing their surroundings. And there were a few patients that I recall, and one was working, she had worked seven years, almost every single day straight for seven years, and then was diagnosed with a terminal cancer. And she finally noticed that she actually had a garden and started going out and spending time in her garden. And she would say, you know, if she didn't, if she hadn't been diagnosed, she wouldn't have seen the flowers. She would have kept going at the same speed that she had been going in her life. And who knows, she could have died in a car accident or something, never seeing or spending time with nature. And so I just think it's really pushing us to see what it is that we value most and appreciate what we value. Uh, appreciate the smaller things in life. And, and maybe that'll help us live a more full life whenever this thing is over. But I, I had, I gotta tell you, I had a great aunt who used to watch the news. This was years ago and she had a big screen TV and she'd sit there and English was her like fourth language. So she had a giant dictionary on a table next to her chair and she'd watch TV. So if there was a word, she could look it up if she didn't quite understand it. But next to that giant dictionary was a giant pack of Valium <laughs> that she would have to take when she'd watch the news. And I would tell her all the time, I'm like, just turn it off. But she wanted to be, you know, educated about what's happening in the world along with her Valium. So it was just, it was interesting. And that's why I tell people, please limit this because it just gets into your psyche and can drive you bonkers. Well, it's funny when you were talking about comedy before and we we're talking about humor I made a conscious choice at the start of this because I was teaching a comedy writing class at the University of Victoria and so once things switched to COVID I said let's talk about how people use comedy to cope with tragedy the entire mm -hmm. course shifted in that direction and I just put up a Facebook page called comedy versus tragedy where I just thought all I'm going to do is put out funny stuff about COVID so that people can find ways to laugh mm -hmm. and share the laughter. And I, I'm, I'm not going to share all the depressing stuff on my site. I may comment out on other people's sites. I'll do it other places. But I thought on my Facebook page, I'm going to try as much as possible to stick to here's something funny. Here's mm -hmm. something cool. Here's something uplifting that's happening right now. So I'll share the story of people applauding healthcare workers or the latest by John Oliver or Colbert or amazing TikTok videos or things like that that are just cracking people up. I'm like, here, here's a moment, mm -hmm. have a laugh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I, that's what I love. And, and I, I was just talking to a friend of mine the other day because she was talking about um, whose line is it anyway? 
And she said that she sees that guy Colin Mockery all over in Canada. And I said, well, I've never seen him, but I saw Drew Carey at, at JFK airport years ago. And we had such a long wait. I went up to him and told him, hey, I worked for hospice. And I, I had a, a video of one of their, I mean, this dates me completely because it was a video, but I recorded one of the whose line is it anyway bloopers that they had on. And I have patients, I would tell my hospice patients, I'm like, I've got this video. Do you think you might be interested? Like, yeah. And it's like everyone I gave the video to, it, it, laughter is so uplifting. It just raises our vibration so high. And it helps us kind of escape from what's happening, but also put things into better perspective. And so I was telling him and just thanking him for everything he did. And he literally grabbed me and hugged me and thanked me. And I'm just like, wait a minute, I'm thanking you. You know, you bring all this laughter and joy to people. And so it's just really, it was, a, it was very kind. But, you know, I just, I think that people are recognizing now, you know, we, there are things that we, we need to focus on more. And I think laughter is just one of those things that's, it's always something that's helped us get through dark times. Well, just before the world shut down, I was visiting one of my best friends in the world and Pally, basically she was dying in the cancer ward in Toronto. And when I was visiting her, she asked if I would write a eulogy for her, but she said, it has to be funny and make people laugh. That was her request, was I couldn't write a eulogy that made people cry. I said, you have to write a funny eulogy, which one of the hardest requests ever, because this is somebody I deeply loved and love. And I totally got why she wanted that. I did that once before for my mentor and a wonderful man named John Giuliani and the night he died. I wrote what I felt and I sent that to his wife and she read it and she said, this is beautiful. I'm going to share it with my son and we're both going to cry. And she said, now you have to write the real one for the memorial service. And that one has to be funny. <laughs> and the, after that, I could never leave stage fright again because I had to do that on stage after watching everybody else go up and, ball on stage and this person was like a second father to me and I stood up on stage and I delivered it and I delivered the jokes and I got off the stage sat down in the church and my legs were shaking so badly if there was a fire I couldn't have stood up but I got through it and I made people laugh for three minutes and that was what Donna had asked me to do right that's what she wanted so, you know, I know that's something that's hard to find, but also that people look for when they're scared and when they're grieving. Yeah, well, what you wrote just, I mean, that just blew me away. Um, and I think I wrote something, I posted something on your, yeah. but yeah, it was so beautiful. Um, and that's, I, I think for me, I guess, and I, I, I kind of am tooting my own horn, I'm really fortunate because I I learned from the get-go when I started, like my first hospice patient that I ever had a zillion years ago told me, 
to that I needed to live and appreciate everything I have. I mean, I can't tell you, I'm probably the dorkiest person because every single day <laughs> I give thanks that I have indoor plumbing and hot water. I, you know, it's something that we so take for granted, but for me, it's just, I love having indoor plumbing and hot water and I've never really not had it except for a few times, but it, it's just, it's something that I'm so grateful for. But he, he, this patient was 50 years old and he and his wife had worked forever. And they're just like, at 50, we're going to retire. We're going to travel the world and live. And so he went to get all his vaccine, vaccinations and everything and ended up being told he had a terminal illness and had three months to live. And so he told me, he said, you've got to live. And so I learned then, and he taught me, he said, if I were to die in a month, would I want to be doing what I'm doing today? And so that's been my mantra. And so if, if I don't enjoy something or don't want to do something, I'm, I'm really not going to do it because what if I die tomorrow? What if I die in a month? And then I take it even further to say that I'm walking with death and grief. They're on either side of me and they're teaching me to appreciate every single thing I have, every moment, every person, every loved one, whether it's nature, humans, whatever, but to appreciate it all because you never know when it's going to be gone. And so that's, I, I just think I'm, I'm really very fortunate to have learned these lessons for what we're dealing with now. And I hope that I can teach other people so that they can hopefully cope with this a little bit better. I love that. Now, yeah. this is Scanna. I should ask you about whales. Can you talk to me about your work? Can you, can you please talk to me about your work with whales, how you got interested and what sort of research you were doing? So I started, I, I've, I, oh God, I hate saying it, but when I was really little, because I grew up in Los Angeles, I had gone to SeaWorld as a kid um, and thought, God, Shamu and Namu and all those guys were amazing. But um, in seventh grade, I went whale watching and saw gray whales and thought, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a whale biologist and that's it. And so I was the biggest geek. I was attending this ritzy private school um, for girls called Westlake School for Girls. It's now Harvard Westlake and it's, it's quite a good school in Los Angeles, but I started a science club called Save Endangered Marine Life. And the only other person in the club was my science teacher. I mean, I was that much of a geek. And then by the time, so I was just studying everything on my own. And when I turned 16 and got my driver's license, I was volunteering at the American Cetacean Society in San Pedro, and they had sent me to Marine Land because Marine Land, Orky and Corky had a baby, and I had been following it in the news. I'm pretty sure it was a boy, following him in the news, and they sent me there to see how he was doing, and it was just devastating because they had removed um, the baby and put him in with a really hyper dolphin in a different tank and the baby ended up dying and it was just horrible but I was doing everything I could with American Cetacean Society thinking oh this is great I'm going to network I'm going to connect with everybody I'm going to learn from everybody and then I'm going to go to college and I can come back and do research and work with them and by the time I got into college um, my parents 
who had always said in the Armenian community, education's huge. And so they were going to pay for my college. But while I was majoring in marine biology and zoology, my mother said, yeah, we'd really prefer you get into law. And then I thought, oh, okay, I'll do environmental law. And they're like, no, we want you to make money. <laughs> and so it was just like, yeah, that didn't work. So then I ended up in death and dying. And, um, and like I said, it was just kind of, it, it was pretty devastating because having to turn my back on whales was really hard. But then when this came about with being in the doctoral program and, and looking at environmental grief, it was just like, okay, this is a way for me to get back into whales. This is awesome. So basically the research I did was working um, with some of the scientists and just talking about the decline of the Southern residents and just seeing how the boat traffic and toxins and uh, you know everything, the Navy sonar, all of these things are devastating this unique population of orca. And it's, it's really too much and it's quite frightening to even think about because we can potentially lose the species on our watch. Um, and we're seeing that everywhere. But what's also kind of on the flip side is that, you know, this pandemic is also teaching us that Mother Nature has a way of managing without us, as we're seeing wildlife now kind of coming out <laughs> into cities that are locked down. And so I, I'm not so sure. I, I'm mourning a lot of what's happening by the the stupidity of humans thinking we're superior when we're not and then thinking about mother nature and thinking yeah she knows what she's doing I, I think she may be okay so while we're doing a lot of destruction she she might find her way through it all but we've seen with other extinctions and mass extinctions that that this happens and we're living in the sixth extinction right now so we have to find a way to navigate through it. And it's not going to be easy, but we know that she's going to be way better off than we are in the end. Now, what suggestions do you have for keeping people fighting for whales, fighting climate change, for keeping us engaged and hopeful? Because, yeah, I look at the news and go, seriously, Mercury's now okay? R really? <laughs> You're, this is the big takeaway from everybody's getting sick is pollution is now better than ever and mercury's cool and toxins are awesome. So how do you keep people fighting the good fight? You know, that's when I look at Jane Goodall because she's been one of my heroes, Jane Goodall and Dr. Sylvia Earle. And I think if Jane Goodall can maintain a sense of hope, then who am I not to? And Al Gore, you know, I'm on the, with the climate reality project that Al Gore started years ago. I'm a climate leader slash mentor. And I look to him too and think, you know, these people are older. They've been there. They've done that way more than I have. And they have hope. And so I think I, I'm going to continue to have hope. And I think the hope kind of comes and this is really dorky to say too, Mark, but it's kind of like, I've been doing this for so long. I don't know how not to be an environmental advocate. It's just not in me. So I'm going to continue to do it. But 
it's horrible. And what's happening, the, the fact that we have so many people who disagree with what's happening in our natural world. You have the climate change deniers and other people. And it's just like, one, it's scary that we walk among them. <laughs> Two, it's just like, you know, that I think is the bigger question is how do we cope in a world where we're seeing all this destruction while other people don't have a problem contributing to the destruction? That's, that's where I kind of struggle. I'm just like, how do I do this? And so what I found for me is, and, and we talked about this a little bit, is um, just in our emails, is I look at the rights of nature as helping. Because I think that, at least in the United States, if a corporation can have rights, I think Mother Nature should. And so I'm harnessing whatever grief, whatever anxiety, whatever issue I have, I'm harnessing that and putting my energy into getting rights of nature because I think that the only way we're going to manage through this all is to change the laws and give Mother Nature a seat at the table when it comes to policy making. Um, because as we're seeing today, everything that's happening has to do with nature and our reaction, our, our existence with her. Are we going to continue to fight against her and destroy her or finally learn to live with her? And as people today are going crazy trying to get gardens and having their victory gardens, I think that there's some hope there. Um, but I, I think that we really need to start putting nature first. And maybe this might wake people up to do that, I'm, I'm hoping. Well, I think when you and I first connected was when I started getting interested. Okay, interested is a, is it quite the word, obsessed? with the concept of personhood for orcas. And that came about because I'm not a scientist. So when I was doing my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, I thought the scientists would explain to me what sets us apart from orcas. Like what, basically I was looking for the reason that we have rights and orcas don't. And I wasn't looking at it as a contrarian. I thought somebody would actually give me an answer, right? <laughs> I, I actually thought a scientist would go, well, because of this and this and this and this and this. And I worked with a bunch of master's students who I hired as researchers because I thought I can ask them dumb questions because I'm paying them a little bit. <laughs> uh, I thought I can't, because all of my other sources were like the top whale experts in the world. So I thought I can't ask one of the top whale researchers in the world something that a science student learned in first year. So <laughs> I would say, what are the things that, are set out to explain what puts us higher up the evolutionary chain than orcas or than other animals. And they go, well, tool use. Okay, orcas use freaking bubble nets and, you know, have basically right. figured out how to use water as their tools. And I kept hearing all of these things and the, the, historical, the historical answers to these questions and realizing that cetaceans blew all of these away <laughs> and finally it came down to 
Lori Marino put, basically put it into, it all comes down to McNuggets. Everybody's afraid of the slippery slope and they're all afraid that if you give animals rights, all animals will have rights and it would be very, very inconvenient to give animals, mm -hmm. animals rights. Like how inconvenient would it be if we couldn't pollute the ocean because the orcas had the right to clean water? Yeah, to a, yeah. To, if nature had rights or Autumn Pelche's fight to give rights to water. And so I've become fascinated by countries that have given legal rights to bodies of water, like the Ganges has legal personhood. And these other bodies of water now have legal personhood so that courts can fight for them. And I'm this, I'm with you. This strikes me as the answer because we've got a society that just saying this is morally right isn't enough. Legally right that moves the dial. Yeah. Yeah, the only problem that we've found is that with most of the rights of nature laws in other countries, the hardest part is enforcing it. And so with the Southern residents, I was asking about this because um, I was interviewing for some other um, stuff about the Southern residents and was asked if other species had had rights. And so I was doing some research and it found that if, not, not if, when we get rights for the Southern residents, they will be the first species to have rights of nature. Um, because you, as you're saying, there are, you know, other countries have ecosystems that have rights, forests and rivers and other things, but not an actual species. There are cetacean rights down in Southern California, but, not, you know, that's for cetaceans in general. Here we were actually focusing on the Southern residents because of what had happened to Taliqua, how she lost her calf and she was trying to bring, you know, the baby up for 17 days. And that brought attention to the Southern residents because we were originally focusing on just getting the Salish Sea, figuring that once the Salish Sea has rights herself, that would definitely include Southern residents because the Southern residents would have to be living in a healthy, clean, toxic-free environment. So we, we switched it thinking, well, if we focus on the Southern residents, the Salish Sea has to be clean. Uh, but it's, it's gonna be, it'll be the first time a species has rights. But it's been an interesting challenge though, Mark, because people have asked the same questions like, well, what about the rights of boaters? What about the rights of hunters? What about the rights? I mean, all these absurd questions. And it's just, why? why? Why do we have to take over the world as we have? Why can't we share it with the rest of the species here? Why do we have to pollute and destroy everything around us, for, especially for recreation? Who came up with that? Yeah. Uh, well, I. I try and keep on top of all the stuff you're doing, but please make sure that I've got everything you're doing around the rights for the Southern residents so that we can share that everywhere we can share stuff on Scanna. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'll send you more. St I'll send you everything and, and it may be repeats, but at least you'll have it. Fantastic. We'll try and get it out with this episode. And is there anything else that you want people to know because this is fantastic. We've covered a lot of cool stuff and it's been so great to finally meet you. I know, it's been awesome. Just, you know, if, if people are having trouble, uh, please come to my website, agreeingworld.care. 
it is getting updated to be a professional because I did it. So I apologize if you look at it anytime soon. Um, I'm not a web designer, but I'm going to eventually have some more information up there about how to cope and also some meditations that people could just download just to kind of help. Because I find that, and I know it sounds hokey, but meditation really does help. And it just helps focus, you know, brings you back to that mindfulness we were talking about, just focusing on the now and what's present, what's in front of you. And I found that animals are great at teaching us to be mindful. So if you have an animal companion or you just listen to the birds outside, they truly just draw you in to thinking about just each moment and then start appreciating each moment we have because we're, despite everything that's going on, you know, there's gotta be something, God, I pray there's something good in people's lives. And if you're able to get up and get out of bed and do it on your own, then you're that much more fortunate than others. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Okay, have a great night. All right, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for checking out Scanna from your home in hibernation. If you like what we're doing and want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join our pod and sponsor us at patreon.com. Even a dollar a month is a huge help because the more patrons we have, the easier it is to get even more patrons. If you can't spare a buck right now but still want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter. Follow us on social media. Share the show with your friends. Heck, share it with your enemies. Share it with strangers. Everyone has plenty of time to listen right now. Also, Chris was talking about the importance of meditation in these crazy times. When our producer, Rain Banu, isn't being a tech wizard, she also leads meditations, and she's about to launch a free online series. Sign up now to get your own on at digital-enlightenment.net. The link is in our show notes. If this show doesn't work for you, namaste anyway. And I'm Michael Moore. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. And now... We'd like to end off this episode by a song by one of my favorite Canadian bands, the Cowboy Junkies. I first heard this from their new album when I was worrying about my uncle and several friends who were fighting the virus and thought, this is the song of COVID-19. All of my friends are okay, by the way. So is my uncle. This song is from the Cowboy Junkies' latest album, and it's called Breathing. Breathing.